0: Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. If you need a Bible, mics up. You can bring one right to your seat. Just raise your hand and we'll get one right to wherever you're at so you can follow along with us. My kids asked me last night what I was teaching on today, and, and I said, well, suffering, and they said, oh, not again. Said, well, that's where we're at this morning, and so when we come across it, we're going we're to cover it, and, and uh, God has got something to say to all of us this morning, I believe. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we read, Beloved. Creator. The title of my study this morning is Suffering Succotash. Hashtag how to respond to suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to open up your word. Lord, we know that every time we do, you have something to say to each one of us here, personally, Lord, and corporately as a church. We ask your blessing upon our time together. We ask your blessing and anointing upon the teachers that are downstairs as they minister to our youth, our kids downstairs, Lord. Touch their hearts. Touch our hearts today, Lord, as we just look to you and look to your word to hear from you. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to uh, surrender their heart and life to you. They're, They're not born again yet. Lord, we pray that they would come to know you this morning as Lord and as Savior. So we thank you for this time, we commit it to you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. For those of you that might be a little bit younger, you might not know, years ago there was an old Warner Brothers cartoon with Sylvester the Cat, and he had a pretty good speech impediment, and uh, you know, he's always trying to get Tweety Bird, all the time, trying to thing, and, and it always backfired on him, and every time it backfired on him, he'd sit down with the slip and would say, suffering succotash, and spit all over the place. Listen, there are trials that we go through that sometimes seem one right after another right after another till we sit down and just cry out, suffering, succotash, what is going on? I read a story about a fire that started on some grasslands near a farm. The county fire department was called to put out the fire, but the fire was more than the county fire department could handle. Well, someone suggested that they call the nearby volunteer fire department to help out. Well, despite some doubt that they could help, uh, they, they would be of any assistance. The call was made. These volunteers arrived in a dilapidated old fire truck. They, they rumbled straight towards the fire, drove right into the middle of the flames, and stopped. The firemen jumped off the truck and frantically started spraying water in all directions. Soon they snuffed out the center of the fire, breaking the blaze into two easily controlled parts. Watching this, the farmer was amazed. He was so impressed with the volunteer fire department's work, so grateful that his farm had been spared, that right there on the spot, he presented the volunteers with a check for $1,000. local newspaper reporter asked the volunteer fire captain what the department planned to do with the funds. Well, that ought to be obvious, he responded, wiping ashes off of his coat. The first thing we're going to do is get the brakes fixed on the truck. (laughs) so often when we're thrown into trial suffering in a situation we suddenly find ourselves what do we do now? what do I do next? do we make lemonade out of lemons or do we sit and sour over the whole ordeal? I think some of us most of us are probably somewhere in the middle you see, we've seen, for the most part, Peter deal with the subject of suffering. He has pointed to Christ as, as a, uh, the believer's example to be like when we go through hard and difficult times. We've been encouraged to keep our eyes focused on Him. And that's really not too difficult for us when things are going well. And for the most part, we have been blessed in, in this country that we live in. We've been blessed with good health, you know, food on our tables. We feel secure in our country We have it pretty easy when it comes to our our Christian faith. Not so for those to which Peter was writing to. Peter warns them about a fiery trial, which is to try you in verse 12. Now, we don't know for sure, but but we believe that he may have been referring to the persecution by this madman named Caesar Nero. Nero had just unleashed intense persecution on the church and which was for sure to hit Peter's hearers. This guy was, was the most notoriously cruelly wicked man in history, ranking right up there next to Hitler. He would cover Christians with pitch and burn them as human torches to light his garden parties. He would feed them to lions just for for amusement and as uh, public sport. I mean that's really intense, about as intense as, as you can get. Think about this someone that you love, maybe someone in the fellowship here, you know giving his life for a few minutes light as this depraved man strolled around sipping his drink and flirting with the woman at his party. Certainly we don't have to face that today, and I pray we never will, but it doesn't mean we won't face our own trials and our own difficulties and our own struggles. So how do we respond? How do we respond when we experience days of suffering and hurt and pain, financial failure, poor health or extreme sorrow or disappointment? What would happen if we did begin to... Face increased opposition as Christians like it was back then. Violent persecution, suffering, even death as it becomes real a real threat to us. Listen, all these things happen to the people Peter was writing to. So Peter has some practical advice for us when we face the simple trials and the difficulties and even suffering in this life. And if you're taking notes, he gives us three things concerning trials and sufferings. He says, number one, we have to realize it. Number two, rejoice in it. number three, respond to it. Number one, we're to realize it. It's going to happen. Trials are going to come. Expect it. You know, they shouldn't take us by surprise. Look at verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do you not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you? What's the first thing that we think of when we get some trial in our lives? Man, this is so strange. Why am I going through this? This is a strange thing happening to me. Peter says, don't think it's strange. But I think it's strange. Well, don't. He says, well, why? Well, he says, listen, if you love Christ, then don't be surprised when trials come. Don't be surprised when sufferings come. They are a normal part of living life in the kingdom of God. Jesus put it this way in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He said in John 15, 20, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Peter says, listen, expect opposition. Expect fiery trials and suffering. You know, that image of fire is often used for a time of testing and persecution, even in today's language. You know, you you hear someone say, oh, he's he's really going through the fire. It's really tough for them. Typical uh, statement to describe someone experiencing personal difficulties and hardships. Now, understand, not every difficulty in this life is necessarily a fiery trial. There are some difficulties that that we bring on ourselves just because of disobedience, maybe because of of sin in our lives. Uh, And and there are some difficulties that, that happen just simply because we're part of the human race and almost everybody experiences them. You can't really say, "Oh, I'm really going through this this tough trial in my life. I have this common cold no <laughs> I'm really going through this tough trial. I have this little hangnail on my my thumb right there, man it's tough. It's really listen, hangnails happen, common colds happen. they're just a part of everyday life. See. Though we're born again, we're still finite creatures living in a fallen, sinful world and and the results of that. So we shouldn't be surprised or shocked when, when bad things happen. It's just the result of the curse. But what is very real is this. As long as we, who belong to God, live in a world that is opposed to God, there's going to be confrontations, there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be trials, and there's going to be suffering. Because the fiery trial, Peter mentions here, comes because the Christians were being faithful to God and they were standing up for what is right. See, that's why the world likes to attack us. That's why they're against us. We represent a threat to their sinful life. I mean, if you've read the New Testament even once through or read anything about church history, it shouldn't surprise you that persecution is a part of the Christian life. You read in the book of Acts that Peter and John being scourged and placed in prison. The stoning of Stephen or the execution of James. The opposition that came to these believers. Even from the start of the early church all throughout church history down through the Middle Ages to where we're at today, believers know that that there are godless men who live with a bitter hatred towards towards Christianity. Get a hold of Fox's Book of Martyrs and go, go through that and read for yourself the thousands of people who gave their life for following Jesus Christ. Joseph Stalin Gained control of the USSR in 1924 and communism began from 1945 to 1975 at the height of communism. Christians worldwide were killed at the rate of 330,000 per year. That doesn't even take into consideration the ones that were persecuted for their faith and lived. But listen, even so, God's work goes on. Despite of the persecution, despite of the the suffering, God's work goes on. And though the wicked have mercilessly tortured followers of Jesus Christ and have cruelly taken the lives of many, they've been unable to put to an end the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even in our own country presently and increasingly, as it rejects God, we who try to hold on to traditional Christian values are under attack like never before. Christianity has been attacked and marginalized by anti-Christ left-wing media who would like nothing better than to see it stamped out anything to do with Jesus Christ whatsoever. And we're seeing more and more of this in the days in which we live. Jesus said that's the way it would be in the last days, Matthew 24, 12. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. It's been said the world does not persecute religious people, but it does persecute righteous people. So Peter's saying, don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised by it. Realize it's going to happen. They will come. Now what do we do about it? That well, it brings us to point number two. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in trials? Are you crazy, Peter? Are you saying, Peter, that I'm to rejoice because I'm, I'm suffering miserably? You know That's not usually my first reaction when I face tough times. But maybe you've seen the commercial on TV recently, direct TV commercials and they promise to save you a whole lot of money but they say some people still like cable tv like some people still like pre-shaken sodas and it shows a guy opening a can of soda spraying all over his face and he's just laughing going ah this is great you know and it, it, some people like having their seat kicked on an airplane it shows a kid just kicking a guy's seat and the guy's just laughing and enjoying you know being this seat kicked and you know it's, some like being ran by a shopping cart and sitting in gum and walking into a, a glass door and they're just enjoying it and having a good old time you know i'm not one of those people I don't think you guys are either. That's not what Peter's talking about here. Peter isn't telling us to rejoice because the suffering is so much fun. Peter is telling us to rejoice because of what it's accomplishing in the life of the believer. When we go through hard times, when we go through difficult times, we can rejoice when we go through times of suffering for three reasons I have here. We can rejoice uh, through times of suffering because, number one, suffering brings results. It brings results. I recently uh, looked at a a post on social media that said this. Sometimes I just want someone to hug me and say, I know it's hard. You're going to be okay. Here's a box of chocolate and six million (laughs) dollars. I thought that was funny. Listen, Jesus brings greater comfort when he promises something greater than chocolate and greater than six million dollars. Jesus said this in Matthew 5.12, When you suffer for the name of Christ, He said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. Jesus takes note. He takes account every time someone says something bad to you about your faith, someone comes against you. Every time you suffer for Christ, He chalks it up towards that reward that's going to be given to us as we stand before God at that beam of seed, at the reward ceremony before the Lord. We can rejoice in that. Number two, we can rejoice when we go through times of suffering because suffering deepens our fellowship with Jesus. You know, whenever we suffer on behalf of the gospel, the Lord comes to us in a special way and affirms that, that He suffers with us. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, I see Four people walking in the midst of the fire and none of them are being harmed. None of them are being burned. We know, we believe the Lord Jesus came and stood with them in the flames. Or how about Stephen when he was stoned for his witness to the, uh, to the Lord before the Sanhedrin and he gazed into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. See, Peter saying here, verse 13, to said that you partake of Christ's suffering. You know that word partake? You know what it means? It's a Greek word, koinia, which means fellowship. You know, we say from time to time, well, hang out afterwards and we can have some fellowship together. Come out Wednesday for our soup night. You know, we we hang out and have some some food and some fellowship together. Well, Peter uses the word in the context of experiencing what Christ experienced it. Christ experienced, rather. What if we had a fellowship night like that? Hey, come out for a time of fellowship with Christ as we invite those who hate us. And hate Christ to come and persecute us. we could have fellowship with Christ through persecution. I would venture to say we wouldn't have very many, uh, you know, uh, takers. It would be a light night. But here's my point. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, it brings us closer to the Lord and more opportunities to identify with His sufferings. Experience what He experienced. I think Paul it uh, clears it up, puts it this way in Philippians 3.10, that his goal in life is this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Because any time a believer encounters any form of persecution or goes through various times of suffering, it becomes an opportunity for that person's relationship with Christ to be deepened as they experience a part of his pain, how being a small part it's still a part. It gives us an idea of what Christ went through for us, what it must have been like for him to be persecuted by the very people he came to save. Listen, if you've ever suffered unjustly or been ridiculed or mocked or defamed or or falsely accused, everything in you wants to scream, that's not right, that's not fair. How could you say that it's not true? But then you look at Jesus and what he went through for you and what he went through for me and you see just how he just stood there and he took it. He didn't open up a word. He was silent when he was falsely accused. And he had done no wrong. He knew who he was. He knew that they had no real accusation to bring against him. Listen, maybe in your case, maybe in my case, though the accusations are false, if you look hard enough, I think you can find some that that, that some accusations that would stick. Because we've all sinned. Yet Jesus was in his absolute perfection and yet he suffered unjustly for us and so because God allows us to suffer at times for Christ's namesake, it gives us just a small taste of what Jesus went through you know that the situation you may be going through right now as it draws you into a deeper more intimate knowledge of the Lord you will get a little better picture of what Jesus went through when he was here then you realize how he totally understands what you're going through because he's been in your shoes he's been there Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by the ones he loved. He knows what it's like to have those whom he gave his life for, to deny him and take advantage of him and abandon him and forsake him. That's why the writer of Hebrews could write in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, time in, time again, the Lord can say to you and I, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the problem, I know how you feel. I've been there, done that. See, that alone deepens our fellowship with Jesus so that when we go through times of difficulty and suffering, we can rejoice because suffering brings results. Number two, suffering deepens our fellowship with Jesus. Then see, suffering gives us an opportunity for God to be glorified in our lives. Look at verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. That word reproach means to be reviled or insulted, and sometimes we are insulted, reviled because we take a stand for Christ. Peter says when that happens, you're given the opportunity for God to be glorified in your life. Now again, I don't know anybody that likes to be insulted. Oh thank you for insulting me. I needed that. No. But we need to understand why the insult the, the insults insultions, Insultations? Why the insults come we need to understand why that, because the reason is Christ is an insult to our pride. When we come to Christ, we have to come humbly. We have to come broken, recognizing our need for a Savior. But to unbelievers, those who are still dead in their sin, they think like we once did. They think, hey, I'm okay, very least I'm not that bad, I'm not perfect, but we imagine that we're pretty close. Even though Jesus is the only one that's perfect and He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So the person who thinks he or she has it all together, when you say they need Christ, when you say they need to turn from their sin, that's an insult to them. It's a blow to their self-esteem and their self-sufficiency. And often they'll respond to you in the form of insults to you or a mockery of our God. That's where it comes from. But understand, when it happens... When we are insulted for the name of Christ, it's because that person has made themselves equal to God. In their mind, they don't need a Savior. In fact, in their mind, they're their own Savior. And certainly they don't like hearing that they need to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. So they're going to backlash at you and me. Again, Jesus said in John 15, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. So Peter says, this is why, but understand, if the Lord allows you to go through ridicule and insults, it's for His namesake. He's given you the opportunity by which you can glorify God with. See, Peter says when that happens, when people retaliate to you, it gives you the opportunity in verse 14, for the Spirit of glory and of God to rest upon you. Again, I bring up Stephen, Acts chapter 6, verse 15. It says, at his trial and at his stoning, all who sat at the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. He's going through it and he's just glowing. Stephen knew that his death was imminent, yet because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he had a brightness, a calmness, and a confidence. Many martyrs throughout the Christian faith have had opportunities for the Spirit of the glory and of God to rest upon them. Think about what it would have been like to be martyred in those days. I read a quote credited to the late pastor and author Richard De showing us what he thought it was like when the early Christians were being martyred for their faith. He says this and I quote, In my mind's eye, I can see thousands of people gathered in a large arena sitting on stone tiers. They've come to watch athletes demonstrate their skills, but that is not the main attraction. The great cry goes up. The Christians to the lions. A door opens, and a small band of men, women, and children walk slowly to the center of the stadium. Calmly and without a trace of hatred or fear on their faces, they kneel together on the ground. They pray, then rise from their knees to sing the hymn found in 2 Timothy 2:11 and 12. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Before the song is ended, the hungry lions, which have been starved for a week, are released from their cages. And in a few moments, it is all over on earth for the Christians. I say to myself, why did they die that way? Just a few grains of incense on a pagan altar, just a word of veneration for the image of the emperor, and they could have walked under the light of the sun to the embrace of friends and relatives. But to take that way of escape from violent death was abhorrent to them, for they had experienced the reality of Jesus Christ and His salvation. They knew that their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit, and in their dying, they manifest His presence in the glow of faith that could be seen upon their faces, end quote. You picture the whole scene, the glow upon their faces. It's it's Peter's conviction that something of that glow rests on the man or the woman who suffers for the sake of Christ. And let me say this, when one suffers for the sake of Christ, especially to the point of death, God takes that tragedy and turns it around and uses it for His glory presently. I think of the terrible tragedy that happened in the Southern, uh, Sutherland Springs, Texas back in November at that church when the gunman came bursting into the church, killing 26 people, including this pastor's 14-year-old daughter, Annabelle. In the midst of his suffering and pain, one day after it happened, he was questioned by the media as to why something like this would happen, and this was the pastor's response. I don't understand, but I know my God does. In that one statement, he displayed the glory of God in the midst of his suffering as he proclaimed his trust in God to see him through. I would say at that moment, the spirit of glory and of God rested upon him. But people on the outside, people in the world, they don't understand that, where we get this strength from. It's the Lord, it's the power of God displayed in our lives through suffering. God takes that tragedy and turns around and uses it for his glory. It was A.W. Tozer who said Seldom does God use a person greatly who has not been hurt deeply. Or C.S. Lewis who put it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, Peter here, now next, gives us a warning about suffering. He says, make sure if you're suffering, you're suffering for the right reasons. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer as a, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Now, Peter gave a similar warning back in chapter 2 verse 20 when he said, what credit is you when you get beat for doing wrong when you've done wrong? But here he takes it a step further and he gets specific. I want you to notice what's in this list that Peter gives us. A murderer, a thief, an evildoer. Man, those are, are bad things, terrible things. But notice what else he adds. And a busybody. Whoa. Why does he add that? Because they can do just as much damage. That's why. We all know busybodies, don't we? Those who love to stick their noses in other people's business. I heard one pastor say, their only form of exercise is running down others and jumping to conclusions. You know, this is something that always seems to amaze me. How people can get so wrapped up with what's going on in other people's lives and and what they need to do and what they need to do in their life. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, don't you have enough problems of your own to always be thinking about this person or that person? But for some people, that's just their life, and their thoughts revolve around what this person is doing or not doing, what they might do. Well, what if they did this, and do you know they're doing that, and did you see what they did? Did you hear what they said? Listen, don't talk to me about them. Talk to God about them. I like the old children's song about being redeemed. One chorus goes, you can talk about me all that you please. I'll talk about you when I'm on my knees. All my sins are washed away. I've been redeemed. Reminds me of a story. I've shared this before, but but I like it, so I'm going to share it again. It's called, You've Got to Love Frank. It goes like this. Mildred was the church gossip and self-appointed monitor of the church's morals, and she kept sticking her nose into other people's business. Several members did not approve of her extracurricular activities, but feared her enough to maintain their silence. She made a mistake, however, when she accused Frank, a new member of being an alcoholic after she saw his old pickup parked in front of the town's only bar one afternoon. She did not know that it was broken down there, but instead emphatically told Frank and several others that everyone seeing it there would know what he was doing. Well, Frank, a man of few words, stared at her for a moment and just turned and walked away. He didn't explain. He didn't defend. He didn't deny. He said nothing. Later that evening, Frank quietly parked his pickup in front of Mildred's house, walked home, and left it there all night. (laughs) You gotta love Frank. How can you make sure you're not going to suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters? Don't get involved in them. Rather, Peter says in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In other words, it's going back to bringing glory to God. He says, if you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for the right reasons. Don't retaliate, he says. Don't retaliate when the government confiscates your property by stealing from them back. Don't be a thief yourself, he says. Don't retaliate, Christian, when they're violent against you by murdering them. Don't do that. Don't retaliate when they're evil to you by, being, by you being evil back to them. Don't go around being a busybody about what's going on and or the way these people, you know, acted to suffering and the way they're going to act and Don't do that. Peter says, if you're going to suffer as a Christian, make sure you're not ashamed of the way that you act as a result. But what I want you to know something in verse 16. Notice the word Christian there. I say that because it, you only find it three times in the whole Bible, and this is one of them. You know, the early church didn't actually call themselves Christians. They called themselves believers. They called themselves uh, the Way or Brethren. Today, if you call yourself a Christian, it can simply mean you're an American. You know, or, or you, know, you live in the Midwest, or you're religious, or you're a Mormon, or you're a Christian science church, you know, which is neither Christian nor science. But in Peter's day, the word Christian really stood for something. It, it wasn't as common as it, as it is today, and the meaning was never misunderstood. The term Christian originated by those who hated the believers if you were called a Christian, it was because you reminded them of Jesus. And, and they didn't like that you reminded them of Jesus. Man, what a blessing it is, it was to be called a Christian, Christ-like. So Peter says, if you're going to suffer for those reasons because you're so much like Christ, it's bugging people, don't be ashamed of that. But then he says something that has caused some confusion over the years. Look at verse 17. He says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, throughout the history of the church, that verse has been used pretty much to to beat the sheep. You know, to to, to tear them down. Listen, church, you better get your act together because judgment's coming and it begins with the house of God. And God's taking names and and, and he's, he's going to get the church first. Listen, now, I wholeheartedly believe that the church needs to get its act together and 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 I, but i don't believe that this is a warning that peter is giving to the church to get ready because god is going to come and judge uh judge the church understand that peter as he's writing this from rome the holy spirit is revealing to him the situation that's going on peter sees the bizarre behavior of caesar nero he knows what nero's leadership is capable of and he knows that more judgment is coming to the christians to those in the church but the judgment that Peter is speaking of is not from God. That judgment that, that we deserve was poured out on Christ. No, this judgment begins at the house of God. It's from Satan. Satan has always been behind the persecution of the church. It started in the early church. It goes on to this day. Peter is warning, uh, writing to warn the believers to hang in there because he knows that the house of God, yeah, judgment has come to the house of God among Christians, and it's going to get worse, a lot worse. And it did. Nero launched the first of 10 persecutions that continued over the next 250 years where over 6 million Christians were put to death. See, Peter's making a contrast here between those that are suffering presently because of persecution and those that will suffer eternally because of rejecting Jesus Christ. So he says, let me read that verse again. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, Peter's saying, look, the judgment that you're going through at the hand of the enemy is nothing compared to what people who don't know Christ are going to face through the hand of God. To put it another way, your life on earth is the closest to hell as you'll ever come. But to the non-believer, it's the closest to heaven that they'll ever get. You see, Peter says in verse 18, another misunderstood verse, he says, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? What does he mean by that? How is a righteous one scarcely saved? Well, the word scarcely means difficult. It's a hard thing. Not hard in the sense that, that you have to work for your salvation. Our salvation is a gift. It's un- unearned. It's unmerited. But hard in the sense of what Jesus said in Matthew 7:13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go, by, go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult, he says. The same word is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Peter's saying this. When you consider what Christ has done for you, through Jesus, what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, how He saved you through faith in Jesus, how He saved you by His grace, by pouring out His wrath and His judgment that you deserved onto His only Son, seeing His Son beaten beyond recognition, Taking what we deserved, also that we could have eternal life and our sins forgiven. What do you think it's going to be like for those who reject what Jesus Christ has done for them? It's going to be bad. I mean, I can tell you this. It's not something I would want anybody that I know and love to ever have to face. In other words, if you think times are tough now, wait until God moves upon a Christ-rejecting world during the tribulation period, as described in Revelation 6-19. through Sure, it might be hard for a Christian now, but it's going to be a whole lot harder if you reject Christ. Because if you're still here during the tribulation period, you'll still, and you, that means you've still rejected Jesus Christ, and you're going to go through unbelievable pain and suffering and, and end up standing before God in the great white throne judgment and being cast into the lake of fire. That's why Peter says it's going to be so much worse, but you don't have to if you just come to Him today, ask Him to forgive you of your sins and commit your life to following Jesus Christ. Listen, uh, The fact is, life is hard. That's just the way it is. It's hard for everyone. It's just life. But even though it's hard, and even though we have problems, we have access to a problem-solver, Jesus Christ. That brings us to our final point. When it comes to suffering and trials, Peter says, number one, realize it. Trials are going to happen. Number two, rejoice in it. Bring glory to God through it. And finally, number three, respond to it. How do we respond to it? Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him and doing good as to a faithful Creator. Now, let's take the first part of this verse first. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. Underline that in your Bible. Remember that it's in your Bible because maybe you've been told suffering is never the will of God. God wants His children always to be healthy, always to be smiling, always to, to live life you know, like you're on a swing. Wee! Happy and healthy and prosperous and never suffer. Suffering is not the will of God. Well, then you better rip this page out of your Bible or change your thinking. Let those who suffer according to the will of God. God allows suffering in our lives. His purpose is behind it. It is the will of God. So what should we do? Well, we should... Commit. He says, commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful creator. When trouble comes, and it comes to all of us sooner or later, we generally can't do much about our circumstances. We can't wave our hands and make the sick well. You know, we we, we can't put money in the bank or cause angry people to like us. But there's one thing we can do in the midst of our troubles we can commit ourselves to our faithful creator. That word commit means to make a deposit for protection. It's like putting something in a safe deposit box. You know, if you've ever put something in a safe deposit box, you don't usually lose any sleep over whether it's safe or not. You know what's there. You don't worry about it. In the same way, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, you can go to sleep without any worries. God is taking care of you. I like verses that speak about how God takes care of us. I like Psalm 121, verse 1-3. through 3. I will lift my eyes to the hills... For whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He keeps you. He's got you covered. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He'll keep it safe. Have you committed your life to Him? Is that a step you need to take right now? I imagine when the people people were writing to read these words, it was at a time of enormous difficulty, personal difficulty. Perhaps they couldn't even see a way forward. How are we going to get out of this one? Listen, when when life begins to tumble all around you, nothing is more important than committing yourself to God as your faithful Creator who loves you, and He promises to take care of you. Instead of trying to figure out how to solve your own problems, you need to say, Lord, I can't do it. Can't do it, can't figure it out. I'm nothing without you. I can't change anything. Lord, let your will be done in my life. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, nothing held back. When you begin to pray like that, God will hear from heaven, and whether or or not our circumstances change, we're going to change on the inside. Our, Our outlook is going to change. One more thing before we close, as I think about this passage. I believe that we can never really believe that God can take care of whatever circumstance in our lives we face unless we first believe in the sovereignty of God over every detail of our lives. See, Peter is teaching us that in every trial that comes our way, God is in control. Nothing can can touch us that does not first pass through the Father's loving hands. And we'll never believe in the sovereignty of God in our trials unless we also believe that He loves us with an everlasting love. And we'll never be convinced of God's love unless we fix our eyes and hearts upon the cross of Christ. That's where it begins and that is where it ends. There we see how the evil purposes of man serve the eternal purposes of Almighty God. We see how how, uh, uh, untold human suffering accomplished our eternal salvation. Fix your eyes upon the cross of Christ. Apart from the cross, it makes no sense whatsoever to rejoice in our suffering. Start there and your own troubles will come into proper focus. What God did for Jesus, He will also do for you. That's why even in the dark days to come, even when you're called to go down through that valley, you, you can do it knowing that He will take care of you. Well you can say, as Paul said in Romans eight eighteen, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Finally, I want to close with this poem written by Annie Johnson Flint called God hath not promised. It goes like this God hath not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised, we shall not know, toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us, we shall not bear, many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised, smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide, never a mountain, rocky and steep, never a river, turbid and deep. But God hath promised, strength for the day, rest for the laborer, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. End quote. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord, for your grace that's been shown out to us to see what your Son did for us upon that cross, so that no matter what suffering, insults, trials we face, we can look to the cross and see Jesus. You went before us. You suffered for us, Lord. We partake in a small, very small sample what you did for us. And we're so thankful for that. So Lord, help us to realize that trials are going to come. Suffering is going to come. Lord, help us to rejoice in the fact that you're doing a work in us when these trials come. And Lord, help us to reply in the right way by committing our life to you afresh. Lord, we pray. Lord, maybe some of us here are, are, are going through trials right now and we see no way out, but we haven't really committed it over to You. We're kind of holding on to it and trying to figure it out for ourselves. And You're calling us just to cast our cares upon You, to lay it before Your throne. Lord, we want to do this right now, to say, Lord, I can't figure this out. I can't get me through this. Lord, You can. You can get me through this situation, this problem. I'm trusting in You, relying on You, and I'm clinging to You to see me through. Thank You, Lord, that Your Word promises that you'll see us through every difficulty, every problem, and you'll strengthen us in the process. Help us to live life giving glory to you in all that we do. Finally, Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, they don't have a relationship with you, they don't have their sin forgiven, Lord, I pray that they would see their need for you and the need to turn from their sin and turn towards your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for their sin and rose again from the grave to give us life, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and abundant life. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that is not born again, that they would not leave here without making that step of faith, surrendering their heart and life to you today. So thank you for this time, Lord. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.